Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Um, If you could please stand for the reading. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened, and to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lizzie, for reading God's word to us, and and welcome once again to all of you who've gathered here uh, for this gathering of New Hope Fellowship. I'm going to invite you to pray with me before we look more closely at these words that were just read in our hearing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You've told us that if we abide in your word, then we are truly your disciples, and that we will know the truth, and then the truth will set us free. You made this promise, Lord, and so we ask that as we seek to abide in your word this morning, and look at it carefully and thoughtfully with the help of your spirit, we ask that you would show us truth, and that this truth would in fact set us free. We ask it in your powerful name. Amen. Every human longs to be free. Would you agree? Every human desires to be free from oppression, from control. And Jesus, well, he can give us the freedom that we long for. Ultimately and eternally. In fact, he came into the world to do just that. Jesus Christ sets people free. The passage that was just read to us shows us as much. You know, centuries before Jesus was ever born, the prophet Isaiah said, the, he, he prophesied and said that the Messiah, the Savior, when he comes, would quote, 
proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. That's in Isaiah 61. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He did it in this passage that we just read. And it's what he continues to do. To proclaim liberty to captives, to declare them liberated, and to proclaim free those who had been imprisoned. If you were here last week, I argued from the previous chapter in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is God in the flesh. And the reason we know that he's God in the flesh, at least in that passage, is because he did what only God can do. He controlled the wind and the sea. Jesus is God in the flesh, and God has always been a liberating God. God has always been about setting captives free. Get this. In the book of Exodus, you can read about how God split a sea so that Moses and his people could cross over and find freedom from their pagan oppressors. Now here, in the Gospel of Mark, God calms a sea so that he and his disciples could cross over and free a pagan man from his demonic oppressors. You see, this is a kind of rescue mission that we're reading about here in Mark 5. It's like Exodus, but, but sort of in reverse. The Savior, God himself, goes into pagan territory, crosses the sea, in order to rescue a pagan man who was enslaved and held captive, not just by people, but by demons. And in both cases, by the way, the oppressors ended up under the sea, drowned. Jesus sets people free. That's the point today. That's the big idea of this message. Uh, but, but let's look closer at what it means for us that Jesus sets people free. Two things we're going to look at in this story. Simple. The power of evil and the power of Jesus. Let's look at the power of evil. Jesus and his disciples had just been on, on the seacoast recently. Um, he had been teaching crowds. And, and then uh, chapter 4, verse 35, tells us that when evening had come, he told his disciples, let's go over to the other side. That is the other side of the sea. So they started that journey across the Sea of Galilee. And while they were out there, a violent storm kicked up. They began to sink. The disciples thought they were going to die. They woke up Jesus, who happened to have been sleeping in the back of the boat. He wakes up. He speaks directly to the wind and to the sea. And immediately a serene calm sets in over the water. And the disciples were frightened by all this. And they said, who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is this? We answer that question Last week, he is God. And now in chapter 5, they've gotten across that sea. And it may have taken all night, we're not sure, but eventually they arrived. And when they arrived on the other side of the sea, they ran into another storm, another hurricane of sorts. It, it was this man who they met, who, who was like a sea. He was untamable and uncontrollable. Look at verse 2. Matthew 5, it says, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, which seems to imply that his situation had gotten worse. Maybe in the past they were able to bind him, but as time went on, he got stronger and stronger. The demons in him were exerting more and more power over him and over others. They could no longer control him, not even with a chain, it says. Verse 4, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one, listen, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. You might say that this man was experiencing an internal storm. It was too strong for him to control. He was under its control and it was worsening. We're told he had an unclean spirit that is a demon. But later we find out that it's more than one, much more than one. And evidently the goal of these demons was to leave him completely ruined, utterly alone, disfigured, destroyed. Whatever family and whatever community this man had was gone. He had been chained up by his own people like a beast, which must have been a last resort. They must have, must have tried many other things, I would hope, before they finally chained him up. It's as if he had lost his humanity. The people in his community must have seen him as a threat. And he was a threat, especially to himself. He was using sharp stones to, to cut himself in the mountains and in the tombs. Maybe because he hated what he had become. Or maybe because he wanted some peace, he was trying to, to drown out the inner anguish, the internal pain with physical pain. He was living among the dead, in the tombs. Maybe you noticed, Mark says this several times, among the tombs, among the dead, he was living there, as if you could call that living. Really, he was just surviving. This is what the power of evil had done to him. This is the power of evil. Now, what do we do with this as a 21st century reader, right? You read this about a man who was, he was violent, uncontrollable. He was hurting himself. Maybe he was hurting others. He's homeless. He's rejected by his community. He, he's surviving as a complete outcast. Now, to, to diagnose him as possessed by evil spirits, that, that might sound primitive to us, doesn't it? Kind of like, oh, that just sounds superstitious. That's the way people used to understand the world in the past. We've gotten beyond that now. After all, we have more robust ways of diagnosing problems. And we do have more robust ways of diagnosing problems. There's no doubt. When someone behaves violently or destructively, we have different ways of understanding why. We might approach the problem medically. We might say, is there a disorder in place? Some might approach it psychologically and say, perhaps this, this person wasn't raised and loved in a healthy enough environment, in a safe enough environment. We might approach the problem sociologically and consider whether it's rooted in unfair social dynamics. Others might approach the problem from an economic perspective. You, you, get, you get what I'm, what I'm saying. There are different factors that might play into someone ending up homeless, violent, and a threat to everyone around them, alienated from society. Medical factors, psychological factors, sociological, economic factors, and more and more. And all of that, all of that is valid. 
by the way. In fact, many of us would say that all those are real causes of evil in our world. We see those factors contributing to evil in our world, and they interact in complex ways that's hard to untangle. What, what causes, for instance, to, to, to refer to an example that's all too common in our society, what causes a young man to walk into a school and shoot his classmates and shoot his teachers and finally kill himself? What causes that? If you were to name any one of those factors as the only factor, that would be simplistic, wouldn't it? There are many reasons, many factors at play. And the Bible agrees with that. When you read the Bible carefully, you'll see that it connects many personal and societal evils back to issues like poverty and injustice and trauma and neglect. The Bible is not simplistic in that regard. But what the Bible also shows us is that if your concept of evil and the causes of evil in this world end there, just at those horizontal factors, then you, in fact, are oversimplifying the problem. Your view is reductionist. If you don't acknowledge that beyond all those other factors, psychological, social, economic, etc., there are also powerful spiritual forces at play. You see, the Bible is not primitive in its understanding of evil. It's not naive. The Bible is, in fact, more realistic and nuanced than, than, than we are in many ways. It, it shows us that the problem with our world, the evil that we face and that our neighbors are experiencing all over the world, is both natural and supernatural. And we're oversimplifying it all when we ignore the reality of a real devil, and real demons and real forces of a supernatural nature. You know, for centuries, Christians have described evil and the, and the dangers that surround us in, in, a, in a kind of threefold way as the, the dangers that surround us as Christians. There's the world, there's the flesh, and there's the devil, and they all pose threats to us. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's based on James 3.15, by the way. You see, there's the world, which is fallen because of sin, so, so there's brokenness and there's sinfulness baked into societies and governments and systems. It's the world. And then there's the flesh. That's us. Our own fallen, broken propensity to sin, to hurt one another, to hurt ourselves, to offend God and reject him. That's the flesh. And then, and then there's also the devil. That, that's the supernatural threat. And if we're going to understand sin, if we're going to understand evil correctly, we have to see all those factors. Yes, sin and evil are social and systemic. And yes, it's personal too, very personal in us. And it's also satanic. The enemy himself poses a threat to us and to the world. We have an enemy who seeks to enslave and destroy. All three dimensions are real. And to eliminate one because it sounds primitive is an awful mistake. As one movie character famously said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he did not exist. That may sound like kind of a, a weird aside here, 
talking about demons and devil here, but I, I say all that in part because I, I want to help us get rid of any barriers that would cause any of us to dismiss this account in Mark 5 and just kind of dismiss it out of hand because we think it reflects a, a superstitious, ignorant past. Because if you make that mistake, if you just dismiss it out of hand as, as myth or a superstition, then who cares what it means for us then? It doesn't really matter. But I hope you'll see that it's not based in superstition or myth, but it reflects a more rigorous, nuanced, and accurate perspective on evil in this world. The other reason I went into all that is because we need to see that the power of evil is bigger than us. We're talking about the power of evil here, right? We need to see that it's bigger than us. It's beyond us. In other words, we can't defeat it. You and I. In the words of one author, a belief in supernatural evil powers keeps us, listen, from whittling down the source of evil to a size, to our size, and prevents us from deceiving ourselves that we can defeat it alone. You see, if we see evil as not just natural but supernatural, then we realize it's bigger than anything I can handle on my own, or you can. We can't defeat it on our own any more than that poor man could defeat the demons that oppressed him. We couldn't say to him, get yourself together and overcome all this. If we get you the right medication, the right therapy, etc., you can overcome this. Again, I'm not discouraging any of those means that we have for addressing the problems of evil and other problems in our world. I'm just saying it's more complicated than sometimes we as 21st century people prone to a materialist view of the world might imagine. Here's a takeaway. Evil is really powerful and it's humanly unstoppable. Just like the sea we read about last week. We can try to subdue it. In fact, we must try to subdue it. We, we try, right? Through, through better, societal evils, we try to subdue them through better laws and better leaders and better access to mental health care and economic reform and criminal justice reform and gun reform and whatever else, you name it. We can try to eradicate it and we must try. We, those are all worthy efforts and necessary efforts. We can try to eradicate evil in our own lives, too. We can try to form better habits, try harder to be good. We can read some helpful books. But no matter how hard we try, we will not purge ourselves of our world of evil. Think about your own life, the selfishness, the gluttony, the greed, the, whatever it is, the anger you see in yourself, the, the impatience, whatever evil you find present in your life, you cannot eradicate it on your own. All you can do is mitigate it on your own. Try to manage it, you know? Control it. They, they tried to mitigate evil in, in that town that Jesus walked into. They, they tried to chain it up. They tried to send them away. They tried to hide them in the tombs and in the mountains. But they could not control it or eradicate it. And that reality is captured in this scene. In verse 4. No one had the strength to subdue him. No one had the strength to subdue him. Such is the power of evil. Ephesians 6, 12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the, look, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You see, sin and evil, whether it's in ourselves or in the world, 
it's too much for us to handle. To subdue it requires a power beyond ours. And that leads us to our next point, the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus, which subdues evil and liberates people from the power of evil and will one day liberate this entire world from the power of evil. See, those demons, they were imprisoning and they were destroying this guy. Satan, after all, is known as, and he's told to call, or described in the Bible to us, as an enslaver, as a, as a thief as well. But Jesus' aim was to release and restore this man. John 10.10 10 says, the thief, the enemy, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came, Jesus said, that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's where we find this man at the end of the story. Well, the thief had stolen this man's sanity and stolen his peace. But Jesus was determined to restore his humanity. Jesus had come into this man's life so that he might have life and have it abundantly. The previous chapter of uh, the Gospel of Mark showed us that Jesus has authority over natural forces, the forces of nature. But here we see that he has power over supernatural forces too. So let's look at Jesus' power in verse 6. It says, and when he saw Jesus from afar, this demon-possessed man, he ran and he fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of most, the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus had cast out demons before. We read about that earlier in Mark. But, but this is a legion of demons, a, a, a legion, a Roman legion. It's a military term. A Roman legion was a battalion of four to 6,000 soldiers. It's huge. So, so as we see this interaction, we're meant to see this as a battle, as a kind of showdown. There's an army of unclean spirits abiding in this man. against the king of kings in whom abides the spirit of God. Unclean spirits, an army of them against the spirit who is called holy, the Lord of hosts, the opposite of unclean. Verse 10 says, and he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. You see, the evil that had total control of this man got, got desperate in the presence of Jesus and started begging. This, these demons that had exerted complete control were now begging for permission. Verse 11, now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. This is a shocking scene, isn't it? If we were to see it, I think we'd be, uh, we'd be shocked. Poor pigs, right? But we need to understand the cultural context a little bit. You see, for Mark's ancient Jewish readers, and this book was written originally for ancient Jewish people, these pigs were very clearly seen as unclean animals. Pigs were gross. 
They were forbidden to eat them. They're no longer, we are no longer forbidden to eat these pigs. God made that clear in Acts chapter 10. You can read it. God said, I've made all foods clean. Praise the Lord. We don't have to reject pigs anymore if we don't want to, but you're free to if you'd like. But Acts 10 was yet to come. But this was, this was a, the, the, this, for, for the Jewish people reading this originally, and for his disciples, they would have said, these are unclean spirits entering these unclean animals and driving them into the sea. Here's how one scholar put it. He said, from a Jewish perspective, the scene is a joke. There's like an irony, I think, in it. Unclean spirits entering unclean animals, and they're both wiped out in one fell swoop. And the human being is cleansed. Such is the power of Jesus. Such is the power of Jesus. He is victorious over the devil's army. And now, as a result, this man is in his right mind. This man is now dressed. He's composed. He's articulate. He's made whole. And, and this is meant to be a, a sign. It's a kind of sign, a foretaste of the age to come when Jesus will free all creation from the power of evil and all will be made whole. Now, after all this, you might expect those townsfolk to throw a party, right? Celebrate this transformed life. Have a parade holding this guy on the shoulders, maybe, maybe holding him on the shoulder, holding Jesus up on their shoulders, celebrating what Jesus had done. Maybe, maybe they, they could have pointed other people to Jesus and said, look, look, here are other people that need healing. But instead, verse 17 says, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Isn't that interesting? He had arrived bringing freedom, but they sent him away. How odd is that? Apparently, the loss of those pigs affected them more than the restoration of that man. Apparently, those pigs were more valuable to them than that man was. In any case, Jesus came to bring peace and healing, not just to that man, but he was offering it to the whole community, but they saw him as a threat. Now, I ask you, can you relate to that? Jesus comes to bring peace and healing, and they saw him as a threat. Can you relate? Because I think sometimes we might be too hard on these folks. We don't realize that sometimes we perhaps have viewed Jesus in a similar way. Jesus comes to help us. He aims to help us. He aims to free us from controlling sin, from things in our lives that threaten us. Do we ever resist? Do we ever judge the cost to be too high? And as a result, we, 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 we ignore his demands or we resent his demands. He's aiming to restore wholeness to us. He's aiming to free us, but we think he's trying to take something away from us that's valuable to us. That's how those townsfolk felt. How about you? How about us? Let me give you an example, because that may be a little too vague. There, 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 let's, 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 let's say there's something in your life that is harmful, something that is sinful. Jesus desires to free you from it. It may be some practice, something that you're engaging in in your life, a habit or some regular practice that, that you've grown to depend on and you've grown to really be attached to. And you know it's not according to God's will. You know it's ultimately harmful to you. You know it's not helping you know Jesus and live uh, uh, the, the life that he desires for you. But you cling to it. And you resist any effort on Jesus' part to 
free you from it. It may be a person, some relationship that he knows, and, and deep down maybe you know, that relationship is not ultimately good for you. But you've become to feel like you need it. You're held captive by it. You're held captive by him or by her. Or it could be that he wants to free you from being captive to money, for instance, or some other idol. And so he's calling you to be more generous. He's calling you to let go of that idol that you're clinging to, not realizing that you're actually its captive and its prisoner. And when you think of letting go of whatever it is that he's telling you to let go of, he's trying to free you from it, whether it's a money or a person or, or some kind of habit, whatever it is, as he calls you to freedom, you cling to that thing. Like, like my precious. Like that little creepy golem creature. Held captive by the very thing that you're clinging to. And resisting the freedom that Jesus offers in effect, you send Jesus away. The freedom he aims to give you, you fear it because you think it'll hurt too much. It's going to cost too much. I wonder, is this happening in any of our lives? Such is the power of evil. It so clouds our perspective that we become willing captives. It's a kind of Stockholm syndrome. You know what Stockholm syndrome is? It's where hostages and prisoners... They, they, they start taking the side of the one who, who's hurt them, the one who is enslaving them against the one who wants to free them. We take the side of the one who threatens us against the one who wants to set us free. Jesus had only good intentions for these people, but they didn't trust him. They didn't trust his intentions. So I ask, how about you? How about us? He's told us, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. And sometimes we wonder, is it really going to be abundant? Is it really going to be better than what I'm holding on to now in my sin? I want to encourage you. I want to encourage us. Receive freedom. Receive freedom. Don't resist. The cost of that freedom on your end always looks heavier than it really is in the long run. And the cost of staying enslaved, imprisoned by sin is always much higher than you think it is. So if his spirit is convicting you, calling you into freedom, I encourage you to stop resisting. And if you've been resisting him, even if you've been resisting Jesus for a long time, here, here's something you have to see about the power of Jesus. When, when he crossed the Sea of Galilee into that, that land of the Gerasenes, he was moving towards people who rejected God. He was intentionally moving towards. He didn't even let the storm stop him. He moved through it to get into that Gentile land to bring freedom. And that's a very big deal. Because these were pagan people. These are people who ignored the true God, who rejected the true God. These are people who worshipped fake gods. They ate pork. They were the sorts of people described in Isaiah 65. Let's look at Isaiah 65. It says there, God is saying, I this is his heart. I spread out my hands all the day. It's welcoming to rebellious people 
who walk in a way that's not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks. He's talking about worshiping fake gods. And he said, who sit in tombs. Does that sound familiar? Like this man was sitting in tombs. And they spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, to go back to that theme again, and the broth of tainted meat in their vessels. He's saying, I move towards people. My hands are open to people who have rejected my words, my presence, my rescue. I am open. I remain open and open-armed to people who are unclean. You see, Jesus brought his rescuing power into the darkest place, into this unholy place that was filled with, with swine and demons. He, he, he intentionally moved in that direction, and he's still willing to do that. God continues to seek out people who have never searched for him. God continues to, to seek out people who have stopped turning to him. And he moves towards people who have, who have a history of resistance to seek and to save the lost. Jesus continues to free people from captivity to Satan and to sin. And if you've begun, if you've begun to feel overwhelmed by your sin, if you've begun to feel trapped by the circumstances of your life or trapped by your own failings, or if you feel overwhelmed and trapped by the evil that's been committed against you, he can set you free if you'll entrust yourself to him. The people who sent Jesus away that day were choosing captivity. They, have not, they may have felt free, like we were fine before Jesus got here, except for that guy in the tombs. He was kind of a nuisance, but Jesus took care of that. We're fine here. But they themselves were held captive by false beliefs, by their own sin. Jesus offers freedom from sin and Satan. And he even offers freedom from death itself. You know, eventually in this Gospel of Mark, we're going to read that, just like that demon-possessed man in the story, Jesus would eventually be naked and rejected and alone in a tomb. And it would all be by choice. He would accept it all because he knew that in the process of being bound up and sent away, and in the process of, of dying on a cross, he would once for all free everyone who believes in him from the ultimate enemy. He would emerge from the tomb. You know why? Because no one had the strength to subdue him. And so Satan and death would once for all be defeated for us. For us, that means eternal freedom for all who believe. Jesus came into this world. He crossed the sea on a rescue mission for the sake of people who had lost everything. And some of us didn't even know we had. If you have not experienced his freedom, I wonder if you feel a sense of captivity. Would you admit that the evil in your life and in this world is more than you can handle? That what binds you in your life is more than you can overcome? You need a power beyond you. But you need the power of Jesus to liberate you once for all.
He will free you from the condemning power of sin, free you from death, and then he, will, he, he can free you from the controlling power of evil too, incrementally as you grow to know him and follow him more. Jesus crossed that sea for one person. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Just one. Certainly he was offering peace and healing to the rest of that community. Only one was actually healed and set free. I don't think Jesus considered that trip a waste. He crossed the sea to set that one man free. Such is the compassion of this liberating Savior. He would do it for you too. And if he has done it for you, I praise his name. And when he did it that day, it was a sign, like I said, that he'll set free all of creation one day. His creation will be set free of evil. Don't you want in on that? Some days, that's the, that's the only thing that, that, that gets me out of bed, that makes me eager to live another day, is that we get to be a part of that. And the only people who will not experience that kingdom where all evil has been eradicated and, and, and well-being, shalom, has been restored. The only people who will not experience that are those who choose not to, who reject this captive, freeing Savior. Those outside the kingdom are a self-selecting group, is what I mean. So as we close, I just need to read the very end of this account. On the one, uh, verse 18, it says, And Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends. That could be translated. Go home to your people. And tell your people how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Jesus said to him, You can't come with me today. Maybe, maybe Jesus wanted this man to have an opportunity to go back and, and rebuild some relationships, rebuild his life. But he also told him, he said, tell them, your people, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has shown mercy on you. Now, get this, when we jump ahead to chapter 7 and chapter 8 of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see that Jesus returns to this region. And he returns to this region and he finds a multitude of believers. Which means that this man told a lot of people about what God had done for him. About how the Lord had shown mercy on him. So many believers, in fact, that Jesus needs to multiply food just, just to feed the people who want to hear him teach. Such is the power of Jesus that it operates even through this one man who's previously almost even not a man. To accomplish the salvation and the freeing of many. Such is the limitless reach of Jesus' kingdom. So, this is what we'll end with. If, and, and it only seems appropriate given where this passage ends. If Jesus had freed you, if Jesus has had mercy on you, who will you tell? Who haven't you told? This is what's occupied a lot of my thoughts this past week. People that I've known for a long time, and I'm asking, have I told them about, have I really sought to tell them about what the Lord has done for me? Who haven't you told? And now, and now really, this is, certainly this means talking about the freedom that God has given you to people who have yet to experience his freedom. 
But I think we can apply this even further. I think Jesus wants us to tell those who know Jesus about what Jesus has done for us. One of the great sources of encouragement that we can give one another as a church is by telling each other about what Jesus has done for us. About the freedom and the mercy that we've experienced. But also, no doubt, we must tell our people. Who are your people? Your people, whoever they are, your community, your neighborhood, your colleagues, who are your people, your family members? None of them is hopeless. We saw that. We saw that a few weeks ago in the parable of the kingdoms that Brian preached on. And we see it again here. If this man was not beyond the power of Jesus, then no one in your life is. So who are your people? Tell your story. I encourage you, tell your story. It's been given to you to tell. Maybe it's not a dramatic story. This guy had a, this guy had a powerful story to tell. Maybe you feel like your story is not as dramatic as his. I don't think any of ours is. But it's your story, and it's ultimately his story. His story of how he freed you. His story of how he gave mercy to you. Tell it. Tell it in love. As we close today and I pray, I want to encourage you perhaps to think of one person, one person with whom you're being called to talk about the freedom and the mercy that you've been shown by Jesus, the one who sets captives free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for moving towards resistant captives who, who sometimes seem to love our captivity more than we desire freedom. We thank you for your persistent, compassionate love. And we thank you for the promise that one day you will eradicate all evil from this world. Lord, some days we feel overcome by it. Our news feeds are enough to make us feel like like evil is unstoppable. Thank you for reminding us that for us, it's unstoppable. But for you, all things are possible. And that you will one day make all things whole. Help us to trust you and experience your freedom now. Now. In your name, amen.